people who don't have a clear vision and don't aren't real clear about what they want to accomplish will often sacrifice profit for growth. Welcome, closers. Today, we have another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast coming at you. This is season three on profit. I'm your host, Jordan Wayla, and every week I interview world class property management entrepreneurs and industry experts who share actionable insights to help you grow your property management empire. Whether you manage 100 units or 1,000, this broadcast is designed to help you see the big picture and give you the tools and tactics that you need to get to the next level. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Today I'm talking with Eric Weatherington, the director of New Heights Property Management, the only certified residential management company in South Carolina. Eric is also the current president-elect of NARPM after serving as the Southeast RVP and National Treasurer. After spending about 20 years in the business, Eric has started, acquired, or managed dozens of companies and has built a pretty solid base of knowledge. Eric's a pretty sharp entrepreneur, and in today's episode, you're going to learn how he made the move from operator to owner and how mindset shifts and strategic thinking can help you do the same. Welcome to the show, Eric. Thanks, Jordan. It's great to be with you and your audience today. So let's start here. How'd you get into the industry? So I got into the property management industry in uh, the end of 2008. I had been in real estate services for a long time previously to that and had a real estate broker's license. And a large real estate firm here in the Charleston area saw with the uh, significant downtrend in opportunities to sell their homes for their clients, uh, realized that managing those properties uh, could be a, a positive alternative to folks who couldn't come to a closing and bring fifty dollars or $100,000 check to the table uh, for the privilege of selling their home to somebody else. Got it. So um, let's keep the story going. Over time, what's been the different flavors of, of the aspects of the industry that you've been involved in? Has it been all primarily single-family property management? No. I, I started my real estate career really in the title insurance industry. So that's where I spent uh, many years working in all the different aspects of the title insurance industry, working for agents, working for underwriters, all kinds of of things related there. Then I uh, actually sold real estate for a couple of years when I lived in North Carolina and moved to the Charleston area in 2007 and uh, got involved uh, directly in property management at the end of 2008 when I started uh, our company then. So you've been around the block. Do you think the perception of property management has changed over time? You've been aware of the industry before you were actually involved in it. Do you think there are any shifting perceptions from the outside of what historically has been viewed as maybe kind of a, a second tier career for real estate professionals? Well, I certainly hope so. And I, I think uh, groups like NARPM and, and other groups that are, are have tried to raise the, the level of service, raise the bar, so to speak, for the property management industry. And I think that has been successful and is continuing to be successful. Uh, and I think that is um, evidenced by the fact that now we're seeing franchising and national brands uh, coming into the property management industry, which, of course, you know, for the, for the longest time, 
you know, those things weren't evident at all. Property management was really just done by the local mom and pops or, or a local real estate agent in a market. Yeah, absolutely. So how would you describe the opportunity to an outsider? There's obviously so many different business models and a successful property management entrepreneur ultimately starts to get uh, tempted and exposed by a lot of the ancillary business opportunities that exist. How do you think about the the benefits or the upsides specifically of the property management kind of recurring revenue business model? Well, I think when you said recurring revenue, that really keys in on on what the opportunity is. A few months back, we had a snowstorm here in Charleston and the city was shut down for five days. And, you know, I didn't lose a dime of revenue in those five days in my property management business. Now, the maintenance company, obviously, we didn't have trucks on the road, so we weren't making money in the maintenance side. But, you know, the rent checks still came in, the management fees still got charged out, and and everything was fine. That was a positive thing. And when you you think about a, a, a doctor's office or a chiropractic business or a you know a, a auto repair shop or you know a lot of other places, a restaurant, you know, if people aren't coming in the door, they're not making money. And in property management, once you have a, a sustainable level of properties built up, a portfolio of properties that you're managing, it doesn't really matter if the office has to be closed for a few days because of a snowstorm. It doesn't matter if you as the owner take a week off and go to uh, go to Tahiti. The business is still there and you're still making money. That is the dream, but you qualified it. You said once it is built up. Let's talk about some of the inflection points in the business. My observation from the outside is that that first inflection point is just getting to the point where you can actually support yourself. Let's call it 100, 100 doors. And then you've got that inflection point of realizing, uh, of determining whether or not you want to staff up and build a bit of a, an organization around it. And then there are, are a series of additional inflection points where you continue to have to make decisions around what kind of business you're wanting to run. What are the challenges or the struggles that you see operators having around really knowing what type of business model suits them in light of the fact that there's not necessarily a right or wrong answer here. 10,000 doors isn't for everybody, nor is 100 doors. Well, Jordan, you hit it exactly. And I think the biggest problem that operators make is they don't know, they haven't decided what they want to be. So very early on for me, as you know, the only person working in the when I started this company, I very quickly decided that I had two options. I either wanted to grow this to be big enough so that I could hire people to do the the day-to-day things that need to be done so that I could focus on doing things that I enjoy doing, or maybe this wasn't the right thing for me. And so I very early on made that made that decision and decided what track I wanted to be in. Because when you get started, yeah, you're the one answering the phone. You're the one going in and meeting with the prospective owner. You're the one putting the for rent sign in their yard. You're the one entering that property in MLS and all the internet sites. You're the one that taking the, the calls from the prospective tenants and showing the property. And, and you're the one doing all of those things. And, and it can be very time-consuming, obviously, and, requ- and demand a lot of time and a lot of commitment on your part. I was on call for the first, I don't know, year and a half or two years of the, of the time that we you know, got started. I was on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week for any maintenance calls or anything at all. That's the life of that, that independent operator. And there are some people that, that have that as their business model, and they only want to manage 80 or 100 doors. 
or 120 doors and, and they can do that by themselves and they're very effective at it. And, and, and that's great. For me, I decided that I wanted to, to build and grow and, and build team, build teams that would be involved in, in those other aspects of the business so that I could, I could do the higher level things that I enjoy doing. So we're leaning into the first big topic that I want to dive further into, and that is around the management function or the management labor dollar, as it were, because the truth is it could be you acting in management. You could hire a professional manager and go pursue another venture. The question I have for you is this, what direction or guidance would you provide an entrepreneur around thinking about what they need to be doing, acting in a management capacity in order to be earning their keep? And what I mean by that is this, when you get to, let's say, 200 doors, whatever it may be, at the point that you hire somebody underneath you, and now you're going to work on the business instead of in the business There's kind of an implicit assumption that a lot of great things are going to happen. You're going to be brainstorming, implementing things, systems, processes, et cetera. But the truth is there is so little guidance on how a professional manager actually adds value to the organization without getting into the minutiae of talking about specific tasks. At the highest level, can you provide any guidance for how entrepreneurs can think about holding themselves accountable to actually using that management capacity well? Well, I think you have to go into it with a mindset of developing a plan for yourself and and having having in your own mind what is your typical day going to look like? What is your typical week going to look like? Where is what is the highest and best use of your time as as the the business owner, the business operator and and once you decide what that highest and best use is, then you can, you know, begin to lay out uh, a game plan for for what you're going to do in those, you know, in those those moments of time in order to have the greatest impact on the organization. I think as a, you know, everything rises and falls on leadership. John Maxwell teaches us, and and as a leader, my role as as the the, the key leader is is this. I mean, I've got to hire the right people. I've got to provide those people with the tools that they need to do their job. I need to provide those people with the training that they need to do their job. I need to provide those people with a clear expectation of the desired outcome. And then I need to get out of their way. And if I do those five things effectively, then, you know, my operation will, will meet the objectives that I want it to meet. Hmm. I like that. So there's some implicit bias there. You're really kind of coming at it from making it more of a who problem than a what problem. That's subtle, but that's actually a pretty big deal. If you still view it as fundamentally being about the what, then it still is kind of on you to execute things. In your experience within your organization, what was the first key hire that really moved the ball forward to you feeling like you were actually getting some some significant leverage through that hire? Remember, this was 2009, so early 2009, when the uh, real estate market was very shaky. And so there wasn't, uh, at that point, of course, any profits being produced. Things were pretty tight. And my first hire was a was just a receptionist, someone to help answer the phones, because we had such a, we're, we're creating such a high demand of of prospects uh, because of the large size of the real estate company that we're affiliated with, it was just overwhelming at that time and in that market. That just provided us a 
a buffer, you know, for me to be able to to focus on the the, the important things of getting new owners signed up, and and that really helped. But for me, it was when I really when I hired my first property manager, my first person who who was licensed, who could uh, focus on on the day-to-day issues of managing those properties. I still went out and did the sales and was out signing properties up, did the business development, but they were focused on on managing the property after it came in the door. And that's when that's when things started to get a little better for me. So when you talked early on about kind of wanting to grow the organization, how concrete was that in terms of goals, planning, leadership, how granular do you get with planning? To what degree do you involve the rest of your team in that exercise? I get pretty granular in the planning. I try to lay out the vision and make sure that that we know where we want to be three to five years from now. I, I look at my role as really is that big picture thinking, thinking down the road. I, I get my team involved in setting our annual goals. I do the budgeting, but I get the team involved in setting those annual goals. And then, of course, the the goals tie into the budget. I'm constantly looking at, okay, where do we want to be? Where do we see ourselves three years from now? Where do we want to be three years from now? What does that look like? And what do we need to be doing today to make sure that we're we're, uh, following that path? So humor me with this question. What is the point of planning and goals? If you're working your hardest, if if you're going to the max and coming home tired every day, isn't that enough? What is the point in burdening yourself with this additional stress of, of goals? Well, what's the point of getting in the car and turning it on and pushing the gas pedal? If you're not steering it in a direction, then you could say, well, I drove really hard and I did a really good job and the car performed really well for me, but I never made it home. That's what goals are. Goals tell me whether I made it home or not. And you can have a great car and you can have a, you know, have a great experience while you're riding in the car. But if you don't end up at the destination that you want to be at, then all you did was had a nice ride. I'm a big believer in business and in life of, you know, have, have a goal, have a vision, have a, have a direction that you're headed so that you are accomplishing something rather than just going along for a ride. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about the practical outworkings of that, the thing that comes to mind for me, Eric, is the distinction between being the operator versus the owner. The operator is satisfied oftentimes with working hard and earning a great income. The owner oftentimes is far less represented. In terms of the entrepreneur that's wearing both of those hats, it's the owner that is only compensated on the basis of either a distribution or the increase of the value of the underlying asset that they have equity in. That's the only time that that owner gets paid. And it's the owner that tends to really get the short end of the stick due to a lack of planning. That forethought that you're talking about there, in my mind, it really it advocates for making sure that this was worth it as an owner. Because if you're just going to work hard, in some ways, it's kind of like you might as well have a job, right? Like it's stressful. There's a, there's an actual and meaningful liability of being a business owner. And if that equity is not increasing in value, um, there's a pretty big missed opportunity. I assume that that's part of what you're getting at here. Yeah, absolutely right. You need to know why you're, why you're in this business and what you're ultimately trying to accomplish and and that's good not only for the owner, it's good for the operator, but it's it's good for the team. It's good for everyone on the team to 
feel like, hey, this is, you know, I can work at this company for the next eight or 10 years, or I can achieve if I work for this company for the next eight or 10 years. And, and as a company, we reach the goals that, that the owner wants to reach, then that means for me personally, I'm going to see this level of success financially. And therefore, that's going to allow me to reach the goals and dreams that I have from, for my family. So it all ties into, you know, why are we here? Why are we doing what we're doing? Let's make sure that we have some clarity around what we're trying to become, what we want to be, because then everybody can be pulling in the same direction. And you know when you get there. Absolutely. Let's pivot now to talking about the dichotomy or the potential dichotomy between profit versus growth. I know that you have witnessed the the magic and the, the, the light in people's eyes when you talk about growth, right? Sales, marketing, ways to either acquire a portfolio or add 100 doors within, within three months. It's exciting. In my mind, there is a tension between profit versus growth, if for no other reason than it relates to what you said previously, and that is intention. The concern that I have as I work with more property management entrepreneurs on a consulting and specifically consulting on the finance piece is seeing profit oftentimes be deferred in the name of growth and then seeing that growth not always happen. Have you observed something similar in the market or, or is that unique to my vantage point? No, absolutely. And and I think what happens is people who people who don't have a clear vision and don't aren't real clear about what they're what they want to accomplish will often sacrifice profit for growth and say, well, we're growing and we're spending all this money on new offices or new locations or or new geography or or whatever. And they they set aside profits. But I like to say profit first, because if you don't have profits, it's ultimately, at some point, somebody's going to stand up and say, you can't do this anymore. And it, whether that's your banker, if you're, if you're highly leveraged, or whether that's your bank account, if you are, as an owner, if you're funding everything out of, out of your own pocket, at some point, if you don't have profits, there's going to be an end. There's going to be an end you've got to get to a point where there is profitability and sustainable profitability, which is a great thing in this business, in this recurring revenue business. And I think sometimes people forget to look at what the value is for every door that I bring on. And am I maximizing the value potential out of every door? Because a lot of times people could just take the portfolio that they have and substantially increase their profits if they understood their profitability per door and their their ability to generate other revenue streams based on that door that they're managing. That's what we really try to focus on is is keeping track of some of those key metrics so we understand are we are we continuing to derive more profit per door for the houses that that we're managing and then growth in and in property management you know we're we're counter cyclical to the real estate sales industry so in many cases in many markets when the real estate sale sales are hot our property management portfolios are going to shrink and when real estate sales are off their averages then our property management portfolios are going to grow if an owner or an operator is not focused on profitability per door, then they could run into a lot of trouble in those changing markets. Absolutely. Profit per door 
You said it. Let's just flesh it out one step further. The specific flavor of rationale that I hear is, I know I'm not profitable right now, but I'm going to grow from, oftentimes it's something like I'm going to go from, I want to grow from 300 doors to 700 doors over the next two years, right? Like it's predicated upon quite a bit of scale. My observation is that profit requires discipline and that trying to defer those hard conversations and to defer that discipline to effectively make a balloon payment down the road is a recipe for disaster to try course correct all that stuff at once and to try and course correct 700 owner agreements that have effectively um, put a lot of a lot of handcuffs on you for effectively monetizing your portfolio agree so i agree with everything you said and the key statement is profit requires discipline and so many entrepreneurs are great idea folks. And and in some cases, they're great at going out and doing something. But sometimes entrepreneurs are not the best at applying discipline to their idea or discipline to their work. And and that's discipline is, is what is required if you're going to build something that is profitable. And and as an entrepreneur, if that's if that if discipline isn't your gift, then maybe you need a coach, or maybe you need, uh, you know, to hire someone that has that skill and that can can bring that to the table. Because if you are not disciplined in understanding your numbers, disciplined in understanding the systems and processes that are required for this business, then yeah, you can go for months and years on end without making a profit. You might have a a, a large portfolio. Personally, I'm I'm not as concerned about the size of my portfolio as I am concerned about the size of the of the check at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And some people, in hearing us have this conversation, think like, "So are you saying don't grow? Or are you saying that you know you shouldn't invest in sales and marketing?" And particularly, I can look particularly uh, backwards or belligerent in light of the fact that I host things like the PM Grow Summit. And I run a a sales focused CRM, so I'm absolutely a fan of responsible growth when it's the right time. But the caveat for me, it really is a false dichotomy in the sense that profit enables growth. If your goal is extreme growth, you need profit to get there. Profit is the oxygen that the organization needs. On the other end of the spectrum, for those folks that are trying to get to 1,000, 2,000, 5,000 doors, I'm curious about your perspective on this notion that larger portfolios may become more valuable simply because of scale? Like, are you sympathetic to the notion that the multiplier on a 4,000 door portfolio versus a 500 door portfolio is going to be dramatically different? All things being equal in terms of the underlying properties, et cetera. Uh, I feel like there's a subset of entrepreneurs, smaller, no doubt, that are chasing that. What what's your gut kind of sense on how valuations may change for a larger asset if you do actually achieve getting to scale? Unfortunately, I guess our industry has never been great on the valuation side. The multiplier that's paid for EBITDA in property management companies is is small relative to a lot of other most every other industry that I'm aware of. On the flip side of that is there's this. There's also a payout that goes, well, we'll pay X amount of dollars per door. So there's this idea that, well, if I just have a bunch of doors, then I can get somebody to to buy me out and I'll get a higher number because of a bunch of doors. But the thing with a bunch of doors is you've got to 
to think about what's the geography that those doors encompass and what's the what is what is it going to take to maintain the oversight across that geography. So if I've got 5,000 doors and they're all within my market area, and when I say market area, I mean someplace where I have a central office, maybe two offices, maybe one satellite office, but everything can be driven to and gotten to within a day. You know, I have a, a centralized team. It's easy to have regular team meetings and, and easy for me to set the vision and cast the, the, the vision with everybody and have goals and all that kind of stuff. Then, you know, getting to four or 5,000 doors is, is maybe is a noble cause. I'm not saying that you can't have 5,000 doors spread out across, you know, three or four states and be effective. You can, but it requires a whole different management style, a whole different set of problems and a whole different set of, of overhead expenses that you know, a person, a person managing 1500 doors in their local city can be probably in, in a lot of cases, just as profitable as someone managing twice as many doors that are spread out over, you know, five cities. Hmm. Absolutely. So part of what I'm getting from you there is just, again, that re-acknowledgement that it's a really different playbook. Scale is its own playbook. So if you're managing 300 doors right now and uh, a multi, multi-market multi operator comes into your market and you're seeing what they're doing, that in, in many ways may not be the playbook for you to feel like you need to copy or mirror. The context of what you're trying to accomplish is critical. Love that answer. I want to transition to talking a little bit about the market positioning and specifically this topic of how do we as an industry build more trust with the end consumer? Every time you go to a regional NARPM event, there's always a little bit of touch on, on legal issues. I'm, I'm thinking in my mind mentally back the last time I was at the last um, Florida state, state convention, Harry Heist, topics of regulation, legislation come up. And sometimes people are divided. There's a subset of people that welcome that sort of thing because they believe that they're the cream that's going to rise to the top. And there's another subset of folks that are very uh, leery of of any kind of influence of that regard and would prefer to self-regulate. All that being equal, what we know is as an industry, what we can do collectively to improve trust with the end consumer is going to serve everybody, but especially those operators that are at the upper end of the spectrum. What are your thoughts about uh, market positioning and just professionalism for the category that we're in? In my opinion, the property management industry has a lot of, of opportunity for growth as it relates to professionalism and, and market perception. Uh, when I spend time with the real estate commission in South Carolina, the uh, the commissioners tell me that 60 to 70 percent of all the complaints that come before the real estate commission involve property management. I think that's pretty typical across the states, at least as I travel and, and speak to folks. I hear similar statistics anecdotally from others as well. Property management is a business that requires trust from the consumer, from the client, because we're based here in Charleston, South Carolina, in the greater Charleston area. Our office is in Somerville, but we service the the greater Charleston market. And we have clients all over the world, as as many 
property management companies do. I mean, you know, we have a big military presence here in our area. And so we have clients that come to us when they get deployed to go overseas and we manage their properties. And we have clients that are in a submarine for six months. They could have no access to the outside world. And they're trusting us to make good decisions, to take care of their property and to do the right things. When operators of, of property management companies violate that trust by taking money from escrow accounts or by telling an owner, well, you know, yeah, we need to repair your roof. And so we're going to not pay you your monthly owner draws because we're saving that money up to buy your new roof when really that money is being used in some other area. I mean, it, it damages trust. It's something that, that we as an industry need to continue to be mindful of, need to keep working to improve our, our standards, our levels of professionalism, improve the way that we, that we handle things. And, and hopefully, you know, the, the, the great operators will choke out, you know, those who are just notorious for not returning phone calls and not responding and not, not doing their job. I'm not a big fan of regulation, uh, government regulation, but, um, you know, and I think the, the free market uh, should prevail and should, you know, the, the cream should rise to the top. And and the folks who who maybe aren't the cream can either decide to change and, and become the, you know, ride up with the cream or or they need to get out of the business and let let, you know, tr- folks who want to be true professionals about what they do, who want to take care of their clients and, and take care of their customers uh, to succeed. So the idea of the lemons market theory is essentially that when a consumer is faced with a unknown quality variable, they're looking at three vendors and they cannot distinguish quality between these vendors. They are inclined rationally to pay an average, right? You're not going to pay a premium because you can't distinguish if that person is worth it. And so what that does is that forces out the higher end providers out of the marketplace. What you just alluded to, kind of what I picked up on that, is the big picture distinction in terms of a view of self. If you think about the lowest view of this industry, it is professional professional gophers, professional order takers. You're essentially organizing maintenance, big whoop. On the other end of the spectrum is a fiduciary. You have money invested in an asset. It happens to be real estate. And this fiduciary is here to walk you through the journey of wealth creation, wealth protection, capital uh, enrichment, et cetera. And there's a pretty wide chasm between that. In your experience, what are some of the things that your average operator can do to kind of move themselves away from the former category and closer to the latter? Well, here's the here's the, a a challenge in that Jordan going right along with what you said. A lot of people get into the property management business from a career in real estate sales, and a lot of people who are in real estate sales don't have a professional mindset in this manner. Let me give you an example. They think that if a customer calls them at eight o'clock at night, they need to answer the phone. They think if a customer calls at 10 o'clock Saturday morning and says, I'm sitting in front of this house and I want to see it. Can you be here in five minutes? They jump in their car and they drive over there. Now, counter, counter that with your attorney or your, your accountant. Would you even think about calling your attorney at home at nine o'clock at night on a Thursday? Not unless, no. my, maybe not unless my house is burning down. <laughs> right. Exactly. 
you know, and you know, would you, you know, would you, would you call your accountant on Saturday at two o'clock in the afternoon and expect him to come meet you at the office in 15 minutes? No, you wouldn't. And, and yet in real estate sales, so many people have fallen into the trap of thinking, well, if I don't answer the phone or if I don't respond, if I don't jump when the customer says jump, you know, then I'm going to lose the customer. And so they come into property management and they carry that mentality in. And so I think it actually degrades the professionalism of the property manager, because then the property manager just does become right. Like you said, they answer the phone, they dispatch the the vendor, they, you know, they go meet the UPS guy when the UPS guy wants to drop off a package. They, you know, they do all this stuff and it's like, wait a minute, what are you, what, what is the really the role of a professional property manager? We're managing a huge asset for our client. And in many cases, a lot of our clients, these homes that we're managing, these, these are their, make up the balance of their, of their net worth. They make up their largest assets. And so how can we be a professional asset manager instead of just the person that, you know, that answers the phone when there's a water leak? Well, how would you respond to the person that says, well, Eric, that's all well and good, but you know, there are 10 other guys in my market that are willing to do that. How can I afford not to uh, offer a similar service quality as somebody that manages 50 doors for a really cheap rate and is willing to come at every beck and call? Well, I think you have to, first of all, have a really clear path in mind of what you want to be, what you're, you want your company to be, what service you want to provide, and you have to be able to articulate that to the customer. And so you have to be able to understand what is it that the customer really wants? Does the customer really want someone who's going to, you know, answer the phone at nine o'clock at night or does, or is the customer interested in putting an extra hundred dollars a month in their mm-hmm. pocket? Mm-hmm. You know, is the does the customer really want someone who is going to go and pick up the UPS package on Saturday afternoon, or is the customer concerned about making sure that if a tenant brings pets into their home, that the property manager has a a means of you know ensuring that that tenant that that owner isn't going to pay a lot of uh, money at the end of the the tenancy if that pet causes damage to the house. So it's really about having a clear understanding of what the value is that I want to bring to my clients and then being able to differentiate myself and my services in, in a meaningful way. So then the customer truly is, yes, the customer needs to make a choice. Absolutely. They, they can choose which of those two things they want. There are customers that are always going to want to choose to drive a Fiat. And that's fine. There's nothing inherently wrong with that choice if that's what the customer wants to choose. But there's a lot of people that look at a Fiat driving down the road and saying, I'd rather drive something else. (laughs) What I hear you saying is that it's connected to the ambition of, of the service that you want to offer. It's not, if you look at it purely from the lens of of it being about what you want, what you're going to get, what you're not going to do, 
that's shallow. I think it gets more depth and legs when it is connected to the ambition of the quality of service that you would like to offer the end consumer. So if in the process of not doing those things, you're re fundamentally reconstituting things, something that actually does have a higher value to the end user, as opposed to purely just thinking about the spread in your margins. I think that's where it really starts to to become more tangible and palpable for people. I do think that there is also an opportunity related to market positioning around designations. So quick plug, I can't have you on the show without talking a little bit about NARPM. Professional designations, this is not the the section of the show where I say join NARPM. If you haven't done it, go do it. But the truth is, if you're listening to this right now, there's a pretty good chance you're a member. I want to address the folks that are already a part of NARPM Eric, how do you think about the opportunity around designations as a way to distinguish yourself in your market and to put yourself out there as a real professional? The designation process exposes you to a lot of information, a lot of great information. And the education that you get from uh, going through those those trainings and, and doing the things that are involved in, in getting a designation more than uh, bring back more value to you than you could ever understand or or uh, even quantify until you've been through it and done it. I think to the marketplace, the designation is good for you to be able to say that that I'm a you know master property manager. That's great, and there's only 250 of those around the country. Or to be able to say that that you know hey New Heights Property Management is a CRMC, a certified residential management company. There's only 47 active CRMCs in the nation. And, and that means that as a company, we have uh, met a, a very high standard of excellence that is demanded by, by the association, by NARPM. That should provide a level of trust in the mind of the customer when they are making those choices. So I think that the designations do uh, provide a point of differentiation when you're, when you're out there competing with you know, with all the different uh, lemons, shall we say, that, that you might run across in the marketplace. I do want to transition now to the rapid fire section of the interview, pivoting off of what we just spoke about. I just want to get some quick answers from you, kind of um, shooting from the hip. We go through this with every guest on the show. And the first question is this, Eric, what books have impacted you the most? Getting Things Done by David Allen. And the five levels of leadership by John Maxwell, and the Go Giver by John David Mann, and can't remember the uh, the other the co-author on that that book off the top of my head. You mentioned getting things done, David Allen. Are you an inbox zero kind of guy? How do you manage your email? Yeah, I like to have inbox of zero. I, I use a lot of of the uh, principles out of getting things done. Generally, you know, when an email comes in. I only try to look at emails a few times a day and then uh, deal with the ones that can be dealt with quickly. The ones that can't be dealt with quickly, I uh, try to create a task for and then come back to them and deal with them at a, at a later time. So I'm, I'm not all, I wouldn't say I'm 100% perfect at inbox zero, but uh, that it's certainly what, where I strive to be. Yeah, same here. I'm totally an inbox zero guy. Next question. If you could do it all over again and go back to your first day in the business, what is one piece of advice that you would have given yourself? I would say it's going to take some time. It's going to take a little more time than you think to get where you want to be. Have some patience and in understanding that uh, we grew so fast. It was 
it was uh, difficult to keep up with everything. And because of the, the, you know, we were at the right time, the right place, the right market conditions. Give yourself a little more space. Give yourself a little patience to, to get everything worked out. Patience. I like that. If you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about our industry, what would it be? I would say the perception among the customer and the level of professionalism. Makes sense. Final question of the interview, Eric, I ask this to every guest. My question to you is, are entrepreneurs born or bred? I think entrepreneurs are bred. I think that while there is a bent for entrepreneurship that comes intrinsically or or is born in, I think successful entrepreneurs are people who are willing to learn, who are willing to be students of learning, and are willing to grow and develop the the innate skills that they have that they've been blessed with to refine them and develop them to their fullest potential. So while I think there is some some aspect of entrepreneurship that is that is inborn, I think the successful entrepreneurs are ones who who uh, who work at it, who cultivate it, love it exactly. Eric, well, I appreciate you coming on the show. If folks want to learn more about your company and what you're up to, what's the best place for them to go? Well, thanks, Jordan. It's been a pleasure uh, being with you and with your audience today. Uh, NewHeightsPM.com is our website, and that's a great place to learn more about our company and, and connect with us there and our various social media points as well. They can be found there at NewHeightsPM.com. What's the next event that you're speaking at? I will be speaking at the Florida State uh, NARPM convention coming up in September. Looking forward to seeing a bunch of my NARPM friends from the Southeast and from Florida uh, down in Orlando at the Hilton Lake Buena Vista. And I think that's uh, the third week of September, September 20th and 21st, I believe are the dates for that. All right, guys, if you can make it, go check them out. Going to be a bunch of great speakers there. Eric, thanks again for coming on. Let's stay in touch. Thanks, Jordan. Have a great day. Thanks for tuning in to the Profitable Property Management Podcast. Please subscribe and leave us a review. Your feedback makes this a better show, and the more reviews we get, the better our guests become. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget that you can find us online in the Profitable Property Management Facebook group, where we mastermind with the best in the industry.